Damn it, I've run out of beer as well. Um, beer? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. I, I, I'm on the, you know, the hard water here. Hello and welcome to Pin Count, the podcast where we go deep into the tech. We're not journalists or just users, we're computer scientists and developers. I'm Ian Wallace and I'm here with my co-host Douglas Shearer. Hi Ian. Okay, so what do we have this week? I believe we've got a little bit of follow-up. Yeah, yeah, we've got a question from a listener. Um, So we have some chat about Facebook's 360 camera setup. Um, We've got a topic about how our website works. Uh, and then we've got hopefully a fun related after show topic Okay. so I'll start off our follow up um, it is from James Burland on Twitter, we'll link to the tweet in the show notes and it's a question for you um, what is more important for presence in VR field of view, temporal resolution or spatial resolution now, I think we're going to have to start by having you explain what those four things are we'll start off with presence in VR Okay, so that's the hardest one to define. Uh, presence is just, do you feel like you're there, I guess, is kind of most simple. What what makes for good presence is what this question is all about, but presence itself is, do you feel like you're somewhere else? The other ones I'll cover briefly. Field of view, how wide is the view you can see? You know, are you looking through a letterbox or a nice big window or out your own eyes? Temporal resolution is time, frame rate, things like that. Uh, it's not It's not that simple. Um, and spatial resolution is how how fine are the pixels. Which of those three, then, is most important? So I think before I answer it, an interesting question would be, what do you think? Because you've not tried VR, and I, I often think people's opinion of VR is often very different to the reality, so I kind of maybe temper my answer by what you think your opinion is. Yeah, so I, I kind of imagine that the temporal resolution is going to be the most important one. If the image the user sees isn't timely and reacting to to movements or actions in the world then it's just not going to be a great experience it's not going to trick your brain into thinking you're in that environment okay so you're talking about latency what everyone refers to as motion to photons which is how long it takes before you move your head and the view updates to that that new movement yes rather than say the frame rate right 120 hertz versus 90 versus 60 yeah yeah, yeah. i'm talking about yeah how long does it take for things to happen after you do them Okay, so I guess my answer is it's none of the above, <laughs> uh, which is a bit, a bit of a copper. But I'll, I'll caveat that with none of the above as long as all those things are good enough. Okay. So temporal resolution, you're right, it absolutely is important, but there's kind of a critical value. If the lag is too much or the frame rate is too low, It just it's not that the, the presence is worse. It's just plain not a nice experience. It feels horrible. Okay. So it's really slightly nauseating. It's it's quite you just can't stand it really. The field of view is an interesting one because okay, let me give you a little thought experiment here to why the field of view maybe doesn't matter that much. It's more to do with the types of experience that you want to give the user. Okay, so imagine you had a tiny field of view in your headset, but had amazing temporal and spatial resolution. Okay. You could do some really great VR there that you really felt like you were there, but the only there that you could simulate would be, uh, I'm trapped in a post box. Okay. <laughs> you know, I mean, you can. And this is kind of this is kind of hinting to what my answer will be. But then that's that's how that's the representation a lot of video games on regular monitors give you, where your field of view is relatively small. 
you've got a really high refresh rate, low latency. Low latency, I mean, in terms of like a monitor, not a VR setup that's useful, and um, quite a high spatial resolution. Actually, latency is normally fairly poor on regular computer games. I mean, yeah, most um, the latency from controller input to motion on a TV can be up to 100 milliseconds on not very good TVs, and people game on that just fine. Yeah. So what what I think is actually most important is a sense of embodiment. I'll try and clarify it a bit and maybe give some examples. I think that to feel like you're there, you need to have some affordances that make your trick your brain into thinking it's there. Now, part of that is you need to have a reasonably wide field of view. It needs to have reasonably low latency. The spatial resolution, I don't think it matters that much. I've had very compelling experiences, even within a Oculus Rift. Uh, DK1, which has got effectively enormous pixels, you know, sort of inches across in your kind of perception of the world. But what I mean by affordances, so this is things like the thing that makes the Vive so compelling is the fact that you've got these motion controllers that represent your hands. So you can hold your hands up in front of your face and then, you know, something appears that you can interact with the world with. That makes sense? Yeah. But it's not necessarily just the Vive with its uh, motion controllers or Oculus Touch controllers, It one of the best experiences I've had on the DK1 is this game called Firma. I'll dig out the link for the show notes. Have you, have you come across it? No, I've not come across that one. Is it one of the demos that's commonly used? Um, not that common, actually, but it's quite a good one. So basically, you're, you're flying this landing craft across the surface of Mars. So the environment you find yourself in is you're looking around inside this cockpit and out at Mars and you're kind of controlling the spacecraft you can you know give yourself a limited amount of boost and kind of float across and impart some sort of direction and this is good and gives a good sense of presence is because you have all these affordances the shape of the cockpit around you the fact that you kind of see all this and your brain's like oh all right I, I can't move myself you know I'm just sat in a chair because yeah. I can't move out this so you don't want to try and move around Okay. You also don't expect that it's your hands doing things in the world, right? You, you, you kind of know. Oh, I'm in a vehicle, so if I'm I, operating, I'm operating some controls, which then have an effect on the vehicle. Precisely, and that's what moves my viewpoint. So, even though you can sort of scoot, you boost across this, you know, alien landscape, and you can look left and right and get all this translation motion in your viewport, which is normally very nauseating if it happens with no affordances, because. You've got all the affordances. It's just like looking outside the window of a car. That's not nauseating for most people. So this is this is as much about setting expectations about what you can and can't do before you even think about them. Yeah, yeah, that's it. It's about tricking your brain. So seeing your hands in front of your face, even if they're not your hands, that does that. Seeing an appropriate environment, that does that as well. So I think things like the Vive, they can do more VR experiences because they have these additional affordances of your hands and you can walk around and all this. But it's not um, necessary. You can you can do good VR experiences even without that, but you need these other affordances to give you that sense of presence. So that's kind of dodging the question a bit. Uh, but I would I would say affordances that uh, give you a sense of embodiment. I think that's the key thing. Even if that okay. embodiment is I'm inside a vehicle, or there's another there's various mech games where you're piloting a mech, and again. Your brain is thinking, well, of course I can't move. I'm trapped inside a mech, but I can look around. Yeah. Okay, James, I hope that answers your question in some sort of fashion. Um, but I'd say, yeah. if, if you make me answer his actual question, <laughs> which is <laughs> field of view, temporal resolution, or spatial resolution, I'm going to go for 
temporal resolution. And okay. I mean that in terms of frame rate and latency of tracking. Because having, yes. having the so the two top consumer VR headsets at the moment would be the in terms of spec would be the Vive and the consumer variant Rift. And of those two, I find the Vive to be a more compelling experience um, because of the hand controllers partly, but mostly because I thought the tracking was a lot better in the experiences I've tried. Okay, that's interesting because certainly John Carmack, one of the um, guys behind the Rift, he's spent a lot of time talking about cutting down the latency yeah. on the Rift. And so it's interesting that the Vive's actually come out and is better in that respect. So I don't know if it's measurably better. That was just my subjective opinion. It may be that the experiences I tried were better at it, but certainly okay. what I noticed. I suppose it comes down to what the whole packet the the whole package is like. You know, you have a good headset. It's got a good setup, like mechanically, electrically, and then all the other parts of it, including the software, come together to give you a good experience. It might be interesting once we start to see um, games or experiences that are available on both platforms using mostly the same hardware to feed them. Yeah, that will, it will be interesting to do that sort of direct comparison. Certainly the quality of the pixels in both headsets is very equal. And you get this kind of an interesting asymmetry between mobile and tethered VR headsets. So if you have something like a Galaxy S7 or a Note 4 or in Google Cardboard or in a Gear VR, you've got a higher resolution than in any of the tethered headsets. So the spatial resolution is better. The temporal resolution tends to be worse. The quality of the render graphics tends to be worse. But the resolution is higher. It's it's interesting because it makes them better at some things. So if you if you're viewing photos or video content, they tend to be better. Yeah. So on the field of view, um, can we separate that and talk about the physical field of view, like how much you're at, where the pixels go to that your eyes see, and then also in some video games you can actually adjust the field of view to make it wider. And it, it does that affect, I guess, by having like a virtual lens. Is there a is there a bit of that going on in VR, or are they? assuming that just the physical pixels matter and you're looking straight ahead. Yeah, they kind of map it to the natural field of view. If you have cameras that are either virtual cameras that are either a different interpupil distance or a different field of view to your actual eyes, it's monstrously nauseating. It's very bizarre. Okay. I, I rigged up a stereo camera pair to a VR headset without with a different spacing to my eyes, and that's exceptionally odd. Uh, you just... Your distance... Because you can judge distances, but it's all wrong, so it's, yeah. it's very bizarre. It kind of like it's not it's not a pleasant feeling. Hmm. Okay, well, I assume we can have fun with that at some point, making each other sick. <laughs> so, moving on, like this is our first topic's kind of related to this, and it's this week Facebook finally published the specifications and the software and so on for their Surround three hundred and sixty camera. Yeah, so I remember this. Um when they first announced that they had this thing um, and then obviously didn't have the specs available. It's quite an interesting setup where you've got multiple cameras on one rig. I'd seen the setup where people have like a bunch of GoPros on a single rig and then I guess at some point they're syncing the footage and processing it. But this seems to be doing it in real time or near enough real time Yeah, before it even hits the storage. The interesting thing about what they're doing is they're, they purport to have solved what is the biggest problem in this sort of recording that I will attempt to explain without the use of visual aids as we're on a podcast, but it's quite hard, so you'll have to tell me how well I'm doing. So the stereo effect is given by recording two camera views of, as I mentioned before, roughly the same sort of spacing as your eyes, okay? 
Okay. So this Facebook 360 camera, if you've not seen it, it looks a bit like a flying saucer with cameras equally spaced all around its perimeter, right? So if you could imagine, imagine we're looking at um, a beer bottle. I picked that example because there's one sat on my desk. Uh, a bit away and equally spaced between two cameras. And you can imagine if you're looking straight at that bottle, then the stereo would be nicely calculated from the spacing between those cameras and it would it would it would look nice and natural okay that that makes sense so far yeah it makes sense yeah now imagine we move the beer bottle slightly to the side so it's it's lined up uh, with one camera but not the other but then so if we're still looking in the same direction as its original position everything still looks fine the stereo effect is still nice okay yeah still yep. making sense but we turn our head inside the virtual sphere of this 360 capture, so we're looking straight at the bottle again. Now we've got a problem, because... The cameras aren't pointing straight at The cameras aren't pointing again. straight at it, precisely. So, the effect, so if you can imagine the effect of the angle to the cameras is shallower, so the effective distance between the cameras is shallower, yeah? Okay, yeah. So you're, you're effectively warping the stereo effect. That's going to result in some quite... It's going to be quite odd for your head because even if you try and correct it in the software, it's still the image is still going to be wrong because you're going to be seeing one side of the bottle or more of one side of the bottle rather than equal sides of the bottle. Potentially. and So you can imagine the effect as if as you turn your head, the distance between your eyes shrinks and grows. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay? If you're just doing the naive stereo approach. And you can imagine how odd that would be. So the, what they're doing is they're doing some cunning stuff with optical flow and stitching of the edges of the images together partly as a way to combat the problems of having imprecise camera calibration information and partly so they can generate synthetic views based on the real views that because they have all the information to reconstruct the views you need of the beer bottle because they have all the cameras looking at it from slightly different angles they have more 3d information than you need for any given viewpoint but the way you reconstruct that is the clever thing okay so as well as the We'll start off with the software. They released the software in a GitHub repo. We'll have a, a link in the show notes. And the hardware it's, design as well. Yeah, and the hardware design. The software's quite interesting. It's like when you look at the source files for doing the image warping you were just talking about, it's surprisingly simple. It's C++. They use uh, OpenCV, the Open Computer Vision Library. And then, yeah, there's some maths going on in here, but it's not anywhere near as complex as I would have imagined. So it seems like maybe the software side of this wasn't the really hard bit. Um, I think OpenCV probably glosses over a lot. I've not actually looked at the source code, and I would be in, I would really be the wrong person to judge whether or not that's simple or not. Um, this is kind of what I do for a living, this sort of thing. So to me, it's probably fine. So I guess your opinion of that is more relevant to general. Yeah, I, th- I think I, the, the code, the code is there's a lot going on, but the code's visu- visually nice, and it looks like you could work through it and work out what's going on. So I suppose in that way the code's perhaps accessible for, accessible for people who want to understand what's going on. Yeah, I mean, OpenCV is fairly readable in general. It's understanding the maths behind it is another thing, and why you're doing the operations you're doing. That's the, that's generally the real trick. The other interesting thing about this build, I think, the real interesting thing is the hardware and how they've done it. So for starters, this is really not a cheap camera. If if anyone's thinking, oh, Facebook have published the details, I'll just go off and knock up one of these and you know, record some stuff. I reckon you're probably looking at about £20,000 to build one, something like that, sound about right. Okay, how many cameras does it use? 17 cameras. Okay. And they're not probably not using them at full resolution. They say 8K per eye, uh, but that'll be per eye for the full, the full 360 sphere. Yep. And, yeah, the data rate on this thing is insane. 
they are saying uh, 240 gigabytes a minute for 60 frames per second. Okay, so you're going to need some quite significant storage to handle that. Some quite significant processing power and then storage to handle It's not even that. the storage, it's the getting all the data off the cameras. So the, the cameras they work with, the Point Grey Grasshopper 3's USB 3 cameras, they, the performance of those cameras tends to be limited by the USB 3 bus bandwidth. So to record all these cameras at full resolution and full uh, frame rate, they need a dedicated USB 3 controller per camera. So most, um, it's going to a little bit of detail, which I'd expect a lot of people listening to this podcast will know, but if you've got, say, four USB ports in the back of your computer, normally that'll be four ports to one controller. Okay. And here they want, they've effectively got four ports per camera because they've got a controller per camera, which means a PCI Express lane per camera. And the way that they've they've done this to try and do this practically is quite interesting. We'll, we'll chuck all the links in the show notes. Basically, they've got so you've got a whole bunch of cameras, seventeen USB three cables, and they are all coming into USB three PCI Express cards that have two controllers per card, and these cards are all mounted in a dedicated PCI Express expansion enclosure, and then they have that connected by PCIe over fiber to a dedicated PC, which is you know quite a fast Extreme Edition six. 6 core, uh, you need that for the PCI Express lanes, they have 40 lanes in the Extreme Editions or the Xeons and then that's connected to 8 terabyte SSDs in a RAID array separately to get the I.O. bandwidth to record that 240 gigabytes a minute So this external PCIe setup with the fibre, that's a custom thing or that's something you can buy off the shelf? No, it's off the shelf, it's actually part of the standard is external PCIe, you put a PCI Express card in your computer that basically breaks the bus out over to an external fibre connector and then it effectively just extends it over a cable and then you connect that into another card which goes into this this expansion backplane which has then got in this case they're using 8 PCI Express times 8 slots Okay, but they do um, also started descending into this rabbit hole and they do all sorts of crazy ones as well like you can get x16 external expansions so you can you know if for some reason you need your x16 pci express card to be not in the same chassis as the rest of your computer that's the thing you can do but because this is just pci express and if you thunderbolt is just pci express right over a cable yep so you can actually use a thunderbolt connector to connect to these expansion boxes Okay, that seems quite a little bit more sensible than what looks like a giant um, f- sort of Ethernet-style fibre connector they've got on this expansion card I'm looking at. It looks like quite a clunky thing if you're using it out in the field. Right, but the problem with you have with uh, Thunderbolt is you've only got four PCI Express lanes, so you don't have the bandwidth for this camera. Okay. Or at least not for the full frame rate. So I suspect you could use Thunderbolt and run this at 30 frames a second, but 30 frames a second to get back to the VR immersion thing... You know, not very immersive. Yeah, this is certainly quite an interesting piece of technology, and certainly clicking on the links you have here, I can see why the cost of this is just huge. There is so much going on here in terms of storage and connectivity, and even the the motherboard and CPU that it uses are quite expensive items. It's hard to process as much data. I mean, we're really at the limits of what computers can do. I mean, that is that will be their resolution and quality limit will be how quickly they can just grab the data off the cameras. Well, it's certainly nice to see that they've open sourced this. It'll be interesting to see what uh, other people do with it. Um, yeah, I think there's a lot of uh, potential applications beyond 
just VR because what you're doing is you're you're capturing a 3D model of the world at high frame rate in real time. So how how similar is this to say what Google used to capture uh, Google Street View and their Maps products? Um, similar in that it's a bunch of cameras, very different in that they're recording in 3D, and this is this is passive 3D, so they're using passive sensors, they're using cameras to reconstruct the 3D. Uh, more recent Google Street View cars and uh, here's mapping cars, they use LiDAR to get more accurate ranging data to a longer range. Okay, well, if anyone in the audience uh, decides to build one of these, um, send us a link. We'd be quite interested to see how you get on with it. I'd be surprised if um, many people build one of these straight off, just the sheer cost of them. You have to be pretty into your 360 video. Okay, what's up next? Okay, so I think for our next topic, it'd be quite interesting to talk a bit about how the sausage is made, if that makes sense. I've kind of got a few questions for you about this. Okay. Mostly... What the hell were you thinking? <laughs> <laughs> so, for a bit of background here, I had kind of assumed, oh, we'd start a podcast, we'll just chuck the MP3 files on Libsyn, which will generate as a nice RSS feed, it'll cost $5 a month, but, you know, who cares? Then we'll just knock up a WordPress site or something, and then that'll do. But then, I kind of thought this, and then I get a message from you saying, here's a, here's the GitHub site, what's your username, so I can add you to it, so you can have commit. <laughs> I mean, What? Yeah, it's one of those things. You start a new project and you either, being a programmer, you think I can build it from scratch or you use some tools and you learn how those tools work and then you do it that way. My day-to-day work is managing a large dynamic site doing a large number of requests every every single minute. Um, so I very much wanted to avoid the WordPress option. Because um, that's just managing another thing that's dynamic. For, for our millions and millions of listeners, yeah? Yeah, for millions and millions of listeners, yeah. There's a performance angle to this as well. I'll get to that in a minute. So WordPress, it, I don't know what it's like now. I've not used it in many years, but it's notoriously poorly performing. And that just, it also meant I would have to install a bunch of stuff on our server. So I thought, well... Well, see, I was just thinking, throw a few dollars at WordPress and do it that way. Yeah, well, that's, that's boring, isn't it? Yeah, it's just boring. There's no fun in that. So what we've ended up with is a bunch of Ruby and Bash scripts that produce a static file. So it's just HTML pages, and they're just served by Apache. And we have a bunch of Markdown files with headers with special information that make up each episode, they get processed, we get the episode pages, we get the RSS feed, it's all pushed out just using rsync to the server and that's it done. So I edit the MP I edit down the audio, produce an MP three and send it to you. Do you then do your scripts I've not actually looked at them. Do they pull the metadata out of the MP three to populate the header information in the show notes? Yeah, so um I this changed last week because I decided it was better if I could update the file because um, like this week I the title was wrong in the metadata so I changed it and uploaded a new version of the file. Now we can do that there's a script that uploads the file to S3 this is a whole other part of it, uploads it to S3 and then it syncs it to the server now the reason for uploading to S3 is if I ever rebuild the server I don't have to re-upload all the MP3s again. For like probably a few pence a year it's going to cost us to store the files on S3. We can just pull them straight off there in a few seconds rather than several minutes to upload them all from one of our PCs. Um, That's even if we've still got all the files in the right places and that sort of thing. And then there is a metadata extraction process as part of that that 
looks at the audio file, takes it the duration and the file size and puts that in the headers. And then we can use th use that to do things like, you know, tell users the size of the file before they download it and how long the episode is, that sort of thing. Okay, so just to kind of summarise that, it's basically a bunch of Ruby and Bash scripts which take the MP3, take some show notes we've written in Markdown and generate the web pages and the RSS feed which then gets fed to iTunes or your podcast client of choice. Yeah. So once it gets to the web server, it's super simple. There's a very minimal number of uh, dependencies needed to run this. Basically, an HTTP server. Okay, yeah. So the, the idea is you do all the clever stuff once and then it generates, because it's all static content that doesn't change once it's published. It's then just all sat there. Yeah. For everybody. There's no login. There's no personalization. It might as well be static content. Now, I know there's static frameworks out there. I use Jekyll for my own blog. It's fantastic piece of software, but I had to look at people's forks of it um, to host podcasts and sort of wasn't happy with any of it. You know, it's just that everyone's done their own thing. So I thought, well, I could do my own thing. And then I thought, why even bother with um, Jekyll? I could just have some liquid templates, re render those to HTML job done. I mean, it, this is open source. We'll have the link in the show notes. All the scripts are, I think, less than 200 lines um, and hopefully they're all readable. All the Ruby is done in a functional style, so it's easy enough to follow. There's no uh, objects or lots of methods. So, yeah, if, if anyone wants to have a look at that and has any comments, yeah, feel free to um, get in touch on Twitter. Yeah, it kind of obviously is pretty simple because you look at you look at our website, all it is is a page per episode that's the show notes and then an RSS feed to feed into iTunes, and that's kind of the same every time. Yeah, so it's, it's four pages. There's the front page, there's the RSS feed, there's a per episode page, and then there's a pages page, which just now we only use for the sponsor information, but we might add other pages in the future. So that's four templates. There's one layout template, and then there's a few smaller things for headers and footers and all that sort of thing. Yeah, I quite like how the site makes the site nice and fast. There's nothing nothing fancy happening in the background. Yeah, I, I, I did have a little benchmark of it, and it is it's fast enough, yeah. Fast enough for millions of listeners anyway. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Maybe if more than maybe 500 of you turn up at once, it may be a bit of a problem. Okay, yeah, assuming there's 500 of you. <laughs> okay, so actually I guess an interesting question, maybe, maybe a hint at a future topic we might cover is, you said it's Ruby and Bash scripts. Why Ruby? So I suppose why Bash scripts is the first thing. Now, Bash scripts are great when... You're interacting with rsync, you're doing simple things with the files, you're not really iterating over them much. Once I want to do anything more than that, I tend to reach for Ruby. Ruby is my day-to-day -to -day tool for writing scripts. Um, some of the applications and sites I manage are written in Ruby on Rails. I've done Ruby on Rails and Ruby for 10 years. It's just like, it's easy. It's easy, I, okay. Yeah, I quite often don't have to look up the documentation. I know lots of APIs. It gets things done quickly. So was this just a chance to try something new in it, basically? Yeah, the programming language and the APIs aren't anything fancy at all. They were just a way to get things done, and the new bit was actually... No, it's not a really a framework, it's a bunch of scripts, but writing a tool to make a static website from scratch rather than having to learn a new programming language as well. Because I could have done it in any number of other languages, including lots I don't know, but that would have taken extra time. And really, I just wanted to get this done quickly because part of the reason for doing it from scratch was so I didn't have to learn other tools. Okay, so yeah, you just wanted to 
get it done quickly. So instead of using off the shelf stuff, you just wrote, wrote your own thing. That's... Yeah, but the off the shelf thing, the off the off the shelf things, you have to learn those. And in this case, like you said, the website is very simple. All we're doing is rendering some static pages. Yeah, I mean, you could have written the whole thing in Bash scripts, to be honest. Yeah, I, I could have done, but but if, if if statements in Bash just do my head in, there's some in that in the script. Just Meaningful just... white space. That's all I have to say about that. Yeah, it's like, you know, like square bracket space. You've forgotten the space. Oh, no, the script doesn't work. Yeah, great. So I think an interesting future topic would be, you know, why, why different programming languages? Or maybe because that's a, obviously they suit different tasks, but maybe some of our favorites and our least favorites and why, and we can have have some discussion about that. And if, if anyone's got their own favorites or least favorites or any thoughts on that, they can let us know. I'm sure all the JavaScript fanboys will be in touch. Oh, Java. I've done so little JavaScript, but everything that I've done in it just makes me hate myself. Yeah. Okay, so is there anything else you wanted to cover this week? I think that's probably it for today. Um, that's two good topics. Um, so you can find us on Twitter at PinCountPodcast. I'm on Twitter as Douglas F. Shearer. Ian is on Twitter at the underscore accidental. If you need to give us longer feedback that doesn't fit in a tweet, perhaps you've got some diagrams or links to API documentation, or we've just been really wrong, um, you can get in touch with us via email at wrongontheinternet at pincountpodcast.com. And I think for this episode in particular, we should just say, and that is the website, you can go to www.pincountpodcast.com and uh, see this site, and we'll put a link to the GitHub in the show notes. And you'll be instantly redirected to the version with no WW on W on the front because that's just wrong. <laughs> that's a whole other show topic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so if you if you des- designed this or done our website, would it have been MATLAB on the back <laughs> would it have end? Been MATLAB on the back end. <laughs> of course, MATLAB is web scale <laughs> for a scale of zero to one, perhaps. Yeah, you are. Well, maybe you're not famous for doing web apps with MATLAB <laughs> I don't want to be fam- not famous for it at all that's just famous to you maybe <laughs> yeah I think I, d- I just I take the piss out of you for the probably the one time you did it and told me about it or made the mistake of Techni- telling me about it technically I didn't implement a web server in MATLAB I asked someone to do it for me Does that mean, I don't know if that makes it better or worse <laughs> I think that probably makes it worse yeah that's, mm. well basically I had a bunch of existing MATLAB that I needed to knock up to a front end for a demo that already kind of existed in a just regular Apache serve, bunch of Perl scripts, I think. Yeah, it was just like, well, I'll just implement a web server in MATLAB that responds to some very specific HTTP requests. And then you can just like call it straight from some HTML in the browser. It's fine. Yeah. So this kind of leads into what would almost certainly be a definite future topic about um, what the cool kids would call it minimal viable minimum viable product but certainly when you and me talk about it we're talking about getting a demo that you can show people as a proof of concept that something actually works and in your case taking a a bunch of algorithms or tools that are already written in something and then quickly wrapping them so you can present them makes a lot of sense a lot of the time i'd say i'm not even doing that i'm taking some crazy idea that someone had and trying to show that it's even possible to make a computer do that yeah that's kind of my thing at least the most exciting part of it's what i like doing best like I, I always joke that I would call myself a software engineer if it wouldn't upset all the software engineers. Yeah, I've seen some of your code. It's amazing. Have you? What my code have you seen? Uh, I've seen your code in your papers. <laughs> okay, yeah. Yeah. Pseudo code. Yeah, yeah. Maybe we should put them in the show notes. Oh, you can find my, people can find my papers with a bit of googling. I'm sure it's easy enough.
Okay, right, I'm gonna take my top off and roast it. I'm just having a look at all the other crazy things that the um, One Stop Systems make. That's the company that make the uh, expansion boards, the external PCI Express stuff. Yeah, the One Stop Systems uh, website is quite interesting. I mean, just on the just on the sidebar, they make custom GPUs and coprocessors. Um, oh no, scratch that. They're actually just off the shelf ones. <laughs> I thought it was a custom thing. Yeah, this is an expensive shop. Yeah, but this is like a box with um, basically external PCIe X16. I guess it's because if you've got a server, you might have... You've probably got the PCIe bandwidth, but maybe not the space in the case for it. Yeah, maybe if you bought the server for one purpose and then decided later on you wanted to have lots of coprocessors or some such and didn't have somewhere to put them. Oh, wow. I've I've just seen this 4U thing that comes pre-installed with 16 GTX 1080s. Oh, fantastic. Oh, it connects up to four host servers. Mm, yeah, I think we'll have to order one of them. Hopefully, you can put Titan X's in it. Don't see why not. And anyway, I said we're not going to talk about GPUs this podcast. <laughs>